Join me. I'm going to be in 1 John chapter 3, and it's called, the message this morning is called Born of God. It's four benefits of being his child. Four benefits that we have by being a child of God. So if you will read along with me, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of 1 John chapter 3. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who practice, makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteousness as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's our passage this morning, and I want to give you four benefits to being a child of God as we unpack this text here. So here's your point number one, right off the bat. A child of God is loved. A child of God is loved. One of the greatest, I would say, benefits of being a child of God is that we are loved by our Father. We are loved by God. We are loved by Jesus. We are loved by the Holy Spirit. And John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, a message that we hear all the time, would you agree with this? A message we hear all the time is God loves you or Jesus loves you. Would you agree with that? We hear that all the time, and that's a good message, and it's a true message, and I would argue it's one of the most important messages because it's, it's one of the reasons why Christ went to the cross but we hear it and we see it so much that I sometimes feel it loses its significance. Would you agree with that? I just feel like sometimes we see that and it kind of goes in our mind and out of our mind and, and we, we don't really stop to pause and consider the awesomeness of the simple truth that God loves us. When we were kids, we would sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. One of the simplest songs ever written, but one of the truest and most profound songs ever written. God loves us. You know what today's date is? You can say it, it's okay. February 25th. Does mean you know that two months ago, it's already been two months, we celebrated God's gift of love to us in the coming of Jesus Christ, his son, who would take our sins upon himself on the cross. The grandest display of love ever. His love is so powerful that he gave his son to pay the ultimate price. Stop and think about why would he do that? God is all self, God is self-sufficient. You realize that God needs nothing. 
you know, we need air, light, food, clothing, shelter. We have a lot of needs. God needs nothing. He didn't even need us. He had a perfect relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He didn't even need us. I have been uh, taking some classes online and um, I t- took taking an apologetics class. And we've, we've studied one of, the, uh, one of the biggest arguments between Christians and Muslims is the Trinity. And, uh, and, and Islam would say that the Trinity is a weak spot in the Christian faith because God has to be one. He can't be three. And the Christians agree, yeah, God is one, but it's not a weak point. It's actually the strongest point because God is one spirit and three persons. Then God can be love because if God was only one and not three persons, there'd be no one to love. So it's actually a strong support of Christianity that God is one and three because God that way has relationships within the Godhead. How does that work? I don't know. God will explain that to it. Maybe, maybe we'll never know. Maybe we'll never be uh, physically able to understand that. But the point is God is love. He's always been love because he has that perfect relationship. He needs nothing. He didn't even need us. And that says so much more about the love of God that he didn't need us and yet he still sent his son to die for us. And think about that. What love is more profound? A love that is desperate and I want you because I need you and I have to have you in my life or a love that says, I don't really need you. I want you. And that's God's love for us. God is love. Let's not forget that. You know, one of the greatest desires of the human heart is to be wanted. Did you know that? One of the greatest desires of the human heart is to be wanted. We want to be wanted. What's that song? I want you to want me. What's that song? Anyway, we want to be wanted. We do. Um, I work with teenagers all the time, and I see this, not just with teenagers. I see it with adults too, but I see it with teenagers because I work with them. I see the clicks. And I see the loneliness and I see the way they dress sometimes because they're desiring to please other people or the way they're just trying to fit in or maybe the way they're just trying to shun all that so that everybody notices that they're not fitting in. However that works, it all comes down to this, a desire to be wanted, a desire to be included, a desire to be loved. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. God says, I want you. I love you. One of the most popular verses, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He loved us so much, he calls us his children. Let me read that verse again. See what kind of love the father has for us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are called the children of God. The Apostle John emphasizes this truth. He says, and so we are. We should be called children of God, and so we are. There's no doubt in the mind of God that we are children of God, that you and I, when you came to a point in your life, when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, at that moment, you became the child of God. You became the son or the daughter of God. You became royalty. God is king. And at the moment that you said, yes, Jesus, you became a prince or a princess of the king. That is awesome. God wants that. You're his children. There's no doubt in the mind of God that you're his child when you have chosen 
to accept Jesus. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love. It's because of his love. He loves us. He wants us. And so by faith we're his. I don't think we grasp that the depth of God's love. I just, I just don't think we can fully grasp the depth of God's love. But here's what I want. I want you to be overwhelmed by the depth of God's love. I can't grasp it fully, but I can certainly be overwhelmed by it. You know, one of the things that led me deeper into an understanding of God's love was, was when we had kids. Um, my wife and I, you know, we, it was just her and I for about five years or so. And then comes along our first kid, Kiara. And I remember the day she was born as if, if you have kids, you'll remember that day. I remember the day that she was born and, and something inside of me awoke and I suddenly understood my love for that little girl resembles God's love for me. In that moment, it was like, I, w- I would do anything for that baby. I would die so that baby could live. I would anything. It, it just it hit me. I was like, that's God's love for me. That's amazing. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it's one of the closest illustrations we can come to on earth. And it's an amazing thing. And now, you know, we have three kids and yes, they're pain sometimes, but you know what? I love them. I love them. And my love, my understanding of God's love rather is deepened because of my children. John affirms that we are children of God and he goes on to say, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now this verse, if you're kind of reading along in the text, this verse might seem a bit out of place. It almost kind of seems like John has an ADD moment here where he's writing about God's love and then he switches over and he talks about the world. But actually, as you read through the text, he does that a lot. John does a lot of compare and contrast of God's view and the world's view. God's view and the world's view. God's love and the world's pseudo-love. And he's talking, he throws these strange sentences in, seemingly strange sentences in sometimes. But we believe in the inerrant word of God, do we not? We believe that every every word of God is true, do we not? We're called harvest Bible Chapel, yes, Harvest Bible Chapel. We believe in the word God. God's word is fixed, it's permanent, and it's not meant to be changed. So this sentence is here for a reason, and John is wanting to show us a difference here. In fact, later on, we're going to see that there's a distinction between a child of God and a child of the devil. We'll get that. We'll get there in a bit. And you'll pick up as we work through, through on this how John is, is deviating in different ways here. There's a reason why the world doesn't know us, he says. There's a reason why the world doesn't get us. There's a reason why the world doesn't understand us. It's because they don't understand him. And if we're the children of God, they don't even know the Father. They can't understand us. They don't know why we act the way we act. They don't get it. Why? Because they don't know who he is. That's a great, a great motivation right there to proclaim the word to our lost friends, family, and our neighbors. I told you that uh, years ago I went through this book, First uh, John, with the teenagers, and um, the world thinks we're crazy. We call the we'll call the series "Crazy Love" because the world thinks we're crazy. I mean, think about the Christian life for a second. Why would we want to fight temptation? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to put somebody else above ourselves? 
That's crazy. And that's the way the world sees it. And it is absolutely crazy. But God's love is all about serving him and helping others. Do you know that? God's love is all about serving him and helping others. And to the world that may seem crazy, why? Because they don't know us. Why do they not know us? Because they don't know the world. They don't get it. And God wants you to see there's a contrast here between God who wants you and the world who doesn't get you. The world is all about self, but the Christian life is all about anti-self. James McDonald once said, a great definition of love is you before me. A great definition of love, you before me. If you remember that, maybe you'll get somewhere. I'm trying to. One time I worked for a contracting company and I was sitting in a meeting with several other supervisors. And after the meeting, they just kind of got to talking as sometimes happens in meetings. And um, they were talking about this benefit that they had attended. And in this benefit, they, they were supporting somebody who they knew who had cancer. They were trying to raise money for their treatment and everything, all good stuff. But the thing that they kept coming back to was how good it felt to them that they gave. And that struck me. Not that it's bad to feel good. I think that's, that's part of, of kind of the fallout of loving others is that we feel good about it. But they kept coming back to it as if that was the motivation to do it. Why do I bring that up? The reason I bring that up is because even in our world's understanding of love, of serving, it's selfish. It's still all about me. And I was struck by that. My duty to love should be you before me if I get anything out of it or not. That's the way God loves, and that's the way we are supposed to love. Point number two. Not only is a child of God loved, but a child of God is immortal. I love that word, immortal. The child of God is immortal. Verses two and three read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know... When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And there's a lot of hope in this verse. There's a lot of hope in this verse. Uh, let's be honest this morning. Show of hands. Anyone tired? Okay, great. Awesome. Anyone, let's just go back this week. Anyone this week just kind of tired of life? Okay, okay, great. I'm there with you for sure. We're not home yet. We're not home yet. When I read verses like this, there is hope. Something greater is coming. At the end of your life, it's not the end of your life. It's the beginning. You and I, believe it or not, we're immortal. We're not going to stop when we take our last breath. We are going to enter into eternity with our Savior. And that is awesome. I mean, the truth is the Christian life is hard. It's hard, for sure. I've heard people say the Christian life is hard, but you know what? A life without Christ is harder. And I would agree with that, for sure. Absolutely. But that doesn't deny the fact that the Christian life is hard. 
I mean, if we go through this life resisting, resisting temptation and striving for righteousness and we're bombarded by the messages and the lies of this world and our enemy, it's hard. But I want to leave you with a bit of hope. We're not home yet. The Bible promises hope to the children of God. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we'll be has not yet appeared. We're not there yet. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he is, when he appears, when he returns for us, when we see him in the clouds or when we perish and open our eyes in heaven, we shall be as he is. How is that exactly? I don't know. I can tell you it's a body that's going to be uncorruptible. I can tell you it's a body that will be untainted by sin. I can tell you it's a body that will be able to live in eternity with Jesus Christ. Amen? Beyond that, I really can't tell you what it's going to be like, only that it's going to be awesome. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 reads like this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That might happen in our lifetime. That might happen in the lifetime of our children, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. I have no idea when Christ is returning, but it's going to happen and we will either be there to witness it or we'll be watching from heaven. When he appears, we shall be like him, immortal, free from the troubles of sin, free from sickness, free from pain, free from hunger. Any Tolkien fans? Okay, there's a, there's a race in J.R.R. Tolkien called the elves, and the elves were described as immortal, but there's a catch. They didn't age but they could be killed. They didn't age, but they grew hungry. They didn't age, but even they could, they could get sick. We're going to be better than elves. Okay? <laughs> better than the elves. That's all I want to say about that. Immortal. Immortal. One of the things that uh, I, was, I was talking to Tony about one time about heaven you know, we, we, we think about our bodies and the way they're going to be perfect and sinless and free from, from disease and things like that. And that's all great. But, you know, one of the things I think we fail to recognize is the relational unity we're going to have. I was actually talking to some teenagers about this last week. Uh, they were asking me um, in Genesis 3, what was the garden like? And I was like, I don't know. But one of the things that came to mind as we were talking about that was like, you know, Adam and Eve had perfect relational unity. You know, when, when Adam woke up in the, in the morning, he didn't think, where's my coffee? <laughs> he probably thought, I wonder what kind of fruit Eve would like. I'm going to go grab her something before she wakes up. Or something to that effect. There was relational unity there. You know, there was no more of this miscommunication. No more of this arguments between brothers, arguments between sisters, arguments between married people. It's not going to happen in heaven. We're going to have perfect relationships. And I'm looking forward to that. There's a lot of mess that happens, and I don't want to get into all that, but you know, there's a lot of mess that happens with us, even us Christians, that shouldn't happen on earth, and that's going to be done away with. Are you looking forward to that? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. He goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This actually leads into our next point. He who hopes in him, that is the person who hopes in Jesus Christ, purifies themselves just as Jesus is, is pure. I'm going to go ahead and give you point number three. Point number three, a child of God is sinless. Now hang on, because I know, I know why, why, what you might think, but hang on. A child of God is sinless, okay? Look at verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, this is another one of those statements where he's contrasting the, uh, the, the non-believer with the believer, okay? Everyone who commits sin breaks the law, in other words. Everyone who commits, that's what he's saying there. Everyone who commits sin breaks the law. You might think, what law? The law that governs the United States of America? No. Well, maybe. It depends on if those laws line up with God's laws. That's the point. God's moral law, that's the thing that is broken. What God declares is right and pure and holy is broken by one who sins. It is thought that one of the reasons John wrote this was to counteract the rise of what was called Gnosticism in their day. And one of the things that Gnosticism taught was that salvation was based on this obscure or esoteric knowledge. They would claim that salvation is based, you get to this point in your knowledge and your growth where you come to a point where you, you, you are enlightened and you realize salvation. That's what the Gnostics were teaching. And according to this view, redemption is through affirming the divine light, the divine knowledge that was uh, already in the human soul. It was not through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. They were seeking this divine light. You know, we've got a lot of religions today that kind of follow that same pattern. That the truth is within yourself. And if you just seek for it long enough, you'll find it. The problem is, that's a lie. And the problem is, the more we seek in ourselves, the more yuck we find in ourselves. And we wonder, why is there a lot of depression in the earth today? People are constantly seeking what's in themselves. Well, I'd be depressed too. For sure. But John was writing against this idea he was writing against this idea. No, no, no. Salvation is not by Gnosticism. Salvation is not by gaining a set of knowledge. Salvation is by repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Sin has to be dealt with. We broke God's law in the Garden of Eden when we took of the fruit that God said don't do. And that has to be accounted for. God, because God is a just God and a holy God, he can't say, it's okay. Sin has to be atoned for. Sin has to be dealt with. And we can't dealt, deal with it by gaining some sort of knowledge. We deal with it by faith in Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So John comes back and he contrasts this idea and he says, you know that he appeared to take away sins. I can't take away my sin. Christ takes away sin. And in him, there is no sin. He appeared, that is Jesus. One of the reasons Jesus came was to take your sin and take my sin away. If sin is breaking God's law, then show of hands, who's guilty? Exactly. Exactly. Only God can take away sins. You know, um, Tony has been preaching through John, and I don't know if you remember, there was a passage where he was talking about uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you, to the, to the paralyzed man. They said, who is this man who can forgive sins? Nobody can forgive sins but God. And the funny thing was, they're right. They didn't make the connection. They didn't make the connection. 
only God can forgive sins. You know, think about that for a second. If I sin against God, only God can forgive me, right? If I sin against you, only you can forgive me. If I sin against my brother or sister, I can't go to somebody else for forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. I can't sin against one person and go to somebody else and say, hey, would you, uh, would you forgive me for the sin I did to this person? I mean, if I tried that, they look at me like, what are you talking about? Go to that person. You know, I can't do that. I have to get forgiveness from the person I've offended. The same is true with God. And this is why Christianity is true because we go to God on God's terms for forgiveness of sin. We don't go try to get to God from some other term. And in him, there is no sin. This is one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as, as we are, yet without sin. Christ had to be sinless or he could not be the perfect sacrifice. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So the Christian, getting back to our point, the Christian is sinless because no one who abides in Jesus can keep on sinning. Whoever abides, whoever says he abides in him and walks, should walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and now little children abide in him. Sorry, that was 1 John chapter 2, reading you some passages to back this up. Whoever remains in Christ, that person has a relationship with Christ. That that person is sinless. Now, let's deal with something here. Because we're sinless, but we still sin. Right? Right? Don't leave me up here, right? Okay, all right, good deal. We're sinless. John just said it. The one who abides in him does not keep on sinning. And yet, just this past week, I won't even go into it, but we sin. We sin. How do we reconcile this? We believe God's word is true? Amen? It just said we're sinless. But wait, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. Uh Uh-oh, the Bible's contradicting itself. No, it's not. I I want to point out to you three aspects of our salvation. Three aspects about about salvation. I want to share some theology with you. Stay with me. Some of you love theology, and that's awesome. And some of you, you try, and, and, you know, maybe it's, I don't know. But I want to share with you some theology, so stay with me, okay? All right. Three aspects of our salvation. The first one, justification. Have you ever heard that word? Justification. Okay, justification. It's a legal term. It means that when I've come to Jesus Christ and I've asked for forgiveness of my sins and I put my faith in Jesus Christ, it's as if God brought the gavel like a judge down and said, not guilty. That's justification. Some people remember it this way. Justification just as if I'd never sinned. Some people remember it that way. It's just as if I'd never sinned. All the sins I've ever done in my past, all the sins that I will ever do in my future are forgiven. That's justification. And that's the way God sees us. Because of Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice on the cross, God looks at us and says, sinless. But I'm still on this body. A body that is corrupted by sin. A body that still, still feels the pull of, toward the world and towards sin. 
And so while I'm on this earth, I work toward righteousness by God's strength, not my own. And that's called sanctification. Sanctification. I am increasingly recognizing the sins in my own life and increasingly by faith, not in my own strength, but by faith, walking and trying to rid myself of the sin that's in my life and, and draw, draw closer and closer to the righteousness that God desires in me. How long does that last? Well, how long are you going to be on earth? Does anybody actually have their exit date? Sometimes that would be nice to know. But I don't have it. I don't have it. It's going to last until we take our last breath here on earth. We'll never be perfect on earth. We will increase and we will recognize, you know, one of the things that I, the older I get, I realize there's more sin in me than I knew. And even some of the things I thought were okay are not okay. Sin is deep. Sin is, is, in fact, Ephesians chapter two says that sin, we're identified with sin. We're born in sin. There's nothing good about me. So yes, I do increase in righteousness as I follow Jesus Christ. But then I also realize there's more than I, than I knew more sin. That's why I need God's grace. The last thing, so that's three, justification, sanctification, glorification. This is what we just talked about when I told you the children of God are immortal. Glorification, this is when we will reach no sin. And that is all God's doing. Actually, everything about salvation is all God's doing. But it's all God's doing who will take this body and transform it into something that will sin no more. Amen? Looking forward to that. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Actually, I'm not going to read that. Never mind. I'm going to go on to the next page. All right. Getting back to the text. Just gave you a brief description of justification, sanctification, and glorification. We as believers are sinless in the sense that we have been justified. And that's what I mean there. One of the benefits of being a Christian, of being a child of God, is that I am sinless in the eyes of God. And that's a good thing. Because that means my sins are forgiven. That's a good thing. Now the one who abides in him, the one who abides, think of that word abide as, as like the word remain. One who remains, one who is with him, that is Jesus. Or sorry, no one, it says, no one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That is the one who practices sin. Now, now the key word here is the word keeps on, okay? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. The idea is, yes, I'm still fallen. Yes, I'm still a sinner. But you know what? I'm, I'm doing less and less and I'm growing. That's what he's talking about there. And if you ever question that, and I have, a few years ago, I questioned even my own salvation because of the yuck I was seeing in my life. And if you get there, and I think... Maybe not every Christian, but I think most Christians come to a point where they do question their salvation. So if that's you, you're not alone. And I want to leave you with some encouragement. If that's you, I would encourage you, look back over the years of your life. Do you see fruit? Not perfection. Fruit. Do you see growth? Do you see sinful habits that are broken or lessened? Where were you 10 years ago? Spiritually. Where were you five years ago? Where were you last year? Is there growth? If there's growth, that is evidence of your salvation. 
That is evidence of your salvation. And I don't want to leave you with that. If, if that's you struggling this morning, I want to encourage you. That is evidence of your salvation. Now, I've been talking a lot about salvation. I've been talking a lot about sin. I've been talking a lot about being a child of God. I want to pause just for a second, and I want to address something here, because I don't, I don't want to preach a message like this and fail to address that there may be someone in the room who doesn't know Jesus Christ. So I want to stop for just a second and say this. If you're here this morning, and you're hearing what I'm talking about, and you're seeing all these crazy people singing songs to Jesus, and you don't get it, I want you to get it. If you're here this morning right now and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never asked for forgiveness of your sins and put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you, do that today. Don't put that off. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or this afternoon or next week. You may not get another chance. Coming to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin, is putting your faith in him. It's recognizing I can't do it myself. I need Jesus. And if that's you this morning, will you come talk to me? After the service, will you come talk to me? Just want to pray with you. I'll answer any questions you have. We'll have the elders up here after the service. If you want to talk to one of them, just encourage you, come talk to us. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want you to do that, if that's you. Okay. A child of God is loved. A child of God is immortal. A child of God is sinless. And lastly, a child of God is victorious. A child of God is victorious. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. If you didn't know, we're on the winning team. If, you, if, if, if you're not sure of that, then later this afternoon, read Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22, and you'll see that we win. Rather, God wins, and, and we get to benefit from that. God wins. No matter how bad this earth's going to get, and it's going to get bad. I mean, 20 years ago, I was a teenager, and people were saying it's getting bad. It's worse. And people, it's only going to get worse. And we should do our part, absolutely, to stand up for what's right, but it's going to get worse. But God wins. And as a benefit of being a child of God, a child of the king, we win too. The child of God is victorious. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the ways that we are victorious is the complete and total and absolute cleansing of our sins. Amen? And that's a promise we can stand on. And it, John goes on to say in John, 1 John 3, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The key word is here, practicing. We talked about this, but just to reiterate, the lifestyle of someone that is habitual sin is a child of the devil, essentially, is what he's saying here. Where, whether as a lifestyle that is characterized by someone who is practicing righteousness is a child of God. There is ultimate Victory for the child of God. 
ultimate victory for the child of God. Let's wrap it up here by reading verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And this is really a summary of the verses that we've been reading. The evidence, as I just said, the evidence lies in the lifestyle. We should all take a hard look at ourselves as I challenged you before and ask ourselves, are we growing? What areas can we be growing? The child of God is victorious, but victorious in the defeat of sin and victorious in the love of the church and the love of the family of God. So I want to ask you, and I want to leave you with this challenge. Are you growing in your love for each other? I need this. I need to grow in my love for you. You all need to grow in your love for each other. And I say that out of love. And that's the challenge that I want to leave you with this morning. Paul said in Romans 13:9, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And that's the challenge I want to leave you with, is the love for each other. Just like John said at the end of verse 10 in our passage this morning, he said, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So let's be men and women who love each other. Amen? Will you join me as I pray? Lord, I want to thank you so much that even though what we planned to happen today didn't happen, but what you planned happened. You are God. You are in control. You see all things, and we praise you for that. Lord, as we just got done reading, there are so many benefits to being your child. But there are benefits only because you did the work. We just, we, we just get the benefit. That, that's awesome. We praise you for your sacrifice. We praise you for your love. You didn't have to sacrifice for us, but you wanted to. Will you help us remember that this week of your love for us? And will you help us to love each other as you love us? There's so much sin baggage that we have to deal with, Lord Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you are not victorious in us. You are. Help us to rely on your strength and your faith and your goodness to do the work that you have called us to do. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and we say all this in your awesome name. Amen.